Let's ask God's blessing. Oh Lord, would you please bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Again, that we might hear from heaven and kneel before you. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. These things we do not possess in our own right, but only through the victorious work of King Jesus and the Spirit inside us, O Lord, may we hear and believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a sweetness to the innocence of childhood. You think back when you were a kid and just how many things you didn't know and how good that actually was. I mean, example, you think about children's stories and how much most of those stories, the villains are real villains. And they want to destroy the whole world And why do they want to destroy the whole world? Well, simply because they are a villain. And that's what villains do. The good guys, however, they want to stop the villains. And that's the nature of their relationship. We want to destroy everything good, lovely in the world. And we want to stop you from doing so. And there's a sweetness and an innocence to that. Where you you know exactly whose side everyone is on. And why they're doing what they're doing. The challenge, obviously, is while good and evil are absolutely good and evil, and there's only two sides, when you grow up and you get to be an adult, you realize it's oftentimes much harder to discern the two. And in fact, actually, in the church, it gets to be a bit more difficult because it's very rarely ever a reality where it is good and evil in such an extreme. In fact, more often... When we deal with conflict and the heroes that we have today, it's more often an exercise of different economies or different values. In fact, actually, as adults, I mean, it's one of our struggles today is, who are your enemies? Well, we could have a list, I'm sure, but if you were going to be honest about the names that you put on that list... How many of those people are laboring for similar ideas, similar ideals, but with a different set of values? I'll give you an illustration. The difference in value between emphasizing the individual tribe or the global perspective. Now, that's played out in our great nation and political parties, that one that emphasizes the state and the other that emphasizes the nation. Both are good things. We love our nation. We love our state. Good. Yay. But difference in emphasis between the two, a different economy, so to speak. Those that value freedom or those that value security. And no, certainly those things are not always mutually exclusive, but oftentimes treated so. Or even greater yet, those that in value, uh, value inclusion versus efficiency. Is efficiency the highest good, or do we want to have other people involved and teach the next generation how to do things? Do we want the highest product, the the most efficient way to get there, or do we want to pass things on and help people learn? You see, none of these things are wicked in themselves. But boy, are they good at creating misunderstandings. 
where we just kind of misfire and go past each other. And passages like this are so wonderful because it highlights for us how often we do that with God. Where when we read his record of his own truth, his revelation, how often we will sometimes bring our own intentions, our own perspectives, our own values, and they don't match his. Put differently, his economy is different than our economy. There are things that I find to be important, that I find to be very valuable to me, that he may not find very valuable to him. I find it very valuable to not have my pipes leak in my house. He has obviously not seen fit to value that. Too often we misunderstand what he's doing because we're valuing the wrong things. And we're going to see it plays out in four specific ways here in the passage. Remember Mark's telling the story and it's kind of bang, 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 action, 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 action. And here he's just left us in verses 29 through 34 where Jesus has hit kind of stride in his ministry and he's begun healing people. He heals Simon's mother-in-law in verse 30. He's healed a man with a demon in previous paragraph and then 32 summarizes the condition of his ministry. At evening, that evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. 33, the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons. He is in the weeds of ministry. And it's important that when we come to this passage, we remember what he's coming from. I mean, I would suggest that most of us, if we were to evaluate a church's ministry, if we were able to say, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, I would suggest most of us would kind of go, you hit the pinnacle of your ministry, like, well done. I mean, if any pastor, I mean, if it was my situation, and the whole city gathered, I don't know what we would do in this room. Maybe we take all the chairs out and people sit on the floor. I have no idea what we do. We can't fit everybody in, obviously. But man, if everybody's gathered at the door, the whole town, you would think, man, this is, this is it. And immediately Jesus displays, no, he values different things, actually. First is, he's going to value prayer as rest, not rest from prayer. 35, rising very early. Now, you got to remember, Jesus, obviously, second person in the Trinity, so he's fully God, but he is fully man. And by that, I mean he's not Superman. That's not fully man. That's part man. Really, it's actually alien from another planet, I guess. But it's not fully man. Jesus is fully man, which means he bears all of the weaknesses that are inherent to humanity. Remember, we already read in Genesis that Adam, an unfallen and unsinful Adam, God looks at and says, no, he needs a helper. I find that so comforting that an unsinful man, perfectly righteous, is still not fully equipped to navigate the world. He needs things. He's built that way. He's built with frailty inherent to his nature. Jesus has it. He's not a sinner, but the frailty of humanity comes with him. And I imagine doing that much work is exhausting. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. 
But at this point in the day, I'm done. Like, I'm done. I'm fried. And I literally have only preached twice. I haven't cast out any demons today. I don't know what that entirely involves for him. I haven't done that. I haven't healed the sick today. And I'm exhausted. He's weary. And we see so much of his pattern of ministry at this point and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. He departs and went out. Where does it go to? It tells us a desolate place. And remember, Mark's already used that idea for us here in chapter 1 and verse 12. We know Jesus here at this point, rather than staying in the city, he gets out. He goes for a walk in the wilderness to get away from the crowds, to get away from the town, to get away from the success, to get away from the ministry. And there he prayed. And again, it's so shocking. I mean, think about this. Well, just thought process. I mean, let's do a thought experiment. Next Sunday, something happens, the Lord's worked, and all of Fort Mill gathers in the parking lot ready to hear preaching from this church. And the ministry of the church happens, and the elders are explaining the scriptures, and I'm, I'm teaching and preaching, and the deacons are helping people, and they're getting water, and we're all serving and loving one another, and everybody's so eager to hear the preaching of the word. Would, would any of you say, now, Michael, it's time for you to leave? All right, so let's say one person's like, hey, Michael, you know what? You need to go on a retreat. I mean, I know we got the whole town in the parking lot, but I'm sorry, you need to go. It's time for you to leave. And it's interesting what he does is his retreat, his effort at rest is an active rest, and it's because he views prayer as rest. Which is intriguing because I would suggest many of us probably rest from prayer. (laughs) Too tired. Too weary. I hurt too bad to talk to God. Too exhausted. Now here the Lord Jesus in perfect model, perfect humanity, perfect holiness displays a proper ordering of life. His relationship with the Father even supersedes his ministry. You know, this is one of the great struggles we're watching happen in America right now where we've seen pastor after pastor after pastor or Christian after Christian after Christian have moral failure. You know the secret to it. It's explained right here. They're more committed to their ministry than they are to their maker. They get the order wrong. They retreat and rest from prayer and not to it. Their ministry becomes the thing that steers the ship. It becomes the driving force. It becomes the train that they get on. And unfortunately, this is not just out there, but a danger for all of us. That we grow so busy. And we're too tired to meet with God. We're just too tired. And that's your first kind of obvious misfire in terms of what we would value and how Jesus is right and we are wrong. 36, Simon jumps in. This is classic. (laughs) And Simon and those who are with him are like, ah, we have a problem now. We have the whole town gathered around. There's people coming in and out and such. And we've lost Jesus. 
Not exactly sure where he is, because the whole town's here waiting for him. And they go looking, and the search is a bit frantic. It's not just, uh, again, the way they write it is to help us understand. It's not just that they were like, hmm, I wonder where he is. Let's go find him. They were a little panicked. To the point where when they find him, you get the classic, I mean, thank you, Captain Obvious statement. Everyone's looking for you. Well, you're looking for him because you've just been doing it, obviously. The town is gathered, and you would expect them to be looking for him. And what's Jesus' response? It's time to go. What? I mean, you have, you have the crowd gathered. I mean, you have, you have everybody there. Let's go. Time to go to the next town. Then I may be pre- preached there also. And again, it's, it's an interesting thing here because Jesus is displaying a commitment to preaching over a commitment to the crowd. His value, his economy is one such that emphasizes the preaching itself is more valuable than sheer numbers. And here, specifically numbers that are coming to have sicknesses healed, which is a good thing. And demons cast out, which is a good thing. But preaching surpasses those. It's a bit shocking, honestly. In fact, actually, the way that he says as it reads, you would guess, is that he actually doesn't go back to town. (laughs) He waits for them out there and just leaves. It's not like he goes back and is like, oh, hey, guys, thanks for coming. I'm so glad you're in the parking lot hanging out for us, but, you know, a little busy at the moment. We'll catch you later. He's just gone. And again, I find it so intriguing because I think most of us, if we had any sort of situation where we had a large crowd gathered together that are interacting with the church, we think that is by definition a good thing. And interestingly, Jesus is saying it is a good thing, but there are better things. And preaching specifically is the driving force to his ministry. The way that Mark captures the ministry of Jesus, strangely enough, though he doesn't tell what the teaching is, he highlights that the central aspect of Christ's ministry is preaching. He is first and foremost a preacher. It certainly should then fall to our ministry to make sure that preaching is the key element to the church. And no matter what we kind of do around that, that at least if nothing else, we would be known as a church that is filled with preaching. It's the pattern Christ sets, the model he holds out for us. And it changes from there to similar concept, though different format. 39, he went throughout all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues, casting out demons. And you see both of those things being coupled together so impressively and importantly. He's preaching and he has the sign that couples that his preaching is the real deal. It's an authentication. It's If you were to have some sort of formal or fancy document, it's the seal on it. It's if you pull out your driver's license, your driver's license has the little mark of the state of South Carolina. If you don't have that and you get pulled over, cops not going to view your driver's license very favorably. 
It takes us into verse 40 where a leper comes to him and imploring him. And this is an unbelievably tender interchange. A leper would be a societal outcast bar none. I mean, this is the reject of all rejects. This is the person that literally, if you came this way, everyone runs that way. This isn't even the like, hey, we we won't speak to you kind of thing. This is like, you are completely shunned from all real interaction. And his interchange with Jesus is so moving. He comes to Christ and imploring him. He's begging. And the nature of his request, it, it takes form. He just kneels before the Lord Jesus. In this unbelievably robust but humble statement, if you will, you can make me clean. And friends, that is an amazing statement because he's understanding the way this is phrased is the condition of his healing is simply the will of Christ, not the power of Christ. When you think about this, if you were to be diagnosed with some sort of awful cancer and you went to go talk with your oncologist, your doctor, you would say, hey, if the medicine works, I know you're going to be able to heal me. Or if you're clever enough to diagnose it, or if you you come up with the, the right treatment plan, all the solutions are going to hinge on the power or the wisdom of the treatment. Interesting here, he has no, no statement of that. He knows cleansing is possible. He knows healing of this wretched disease of leprosy is possible. The only thing that needs to change is the mind of the man with the power. Oh, Jesus, if you will. That's all we need is for you to will. Because I know you're able And the Lord Jesus does something here that I, I, I can't imagine the gasp that would have gone through the crowd if there's one around him at this point. Where he stretches out his hand and he touches the man. And that, I mean, please do not underestimate the shock of that. One, their medicine's... A, Understanding of medicine is obviously a bit less refined than ours would be. And so you're thinking, one, that's a disgusting person. I mean, leprosy is not one of those things that you can kind of have and not look too shabby and be okay. I mean, it's like you look heinous. And you are heinous. It's really... And then on top of that, you would have had all of Old Testament law, which would have marked this man as being unclean. And to touch him is to spread the uncleanliness and honestly to potentially spread the disease itself. And the Lord Jesus, exercising the law of love and compassion, which is superseding the law of cleanliness, shares his purity with an impure man. I mean, just pause for a moment and think. Depending on how long this man has had this disease, that would have been the last time he received any physical contact. 
I mean, can you imagine how, how, how long you go without having anybody just touch you at all? A handshake, a hug, a hand on the back or on the shoulder. The severe isolation. I, I, honestly, I don't know how I would do that or how well we would process. And yet here the Lord Christ moved with great compassion, reaches out and makes contact, physical contact, touching the man, and contact with his power, cleansing the man. Christ is valuing compassion even over cleanliness, which would have been staggering. To share his purity with this man in such a way as to cleanse him of leprosy, and he is made clean instantaneously. This is the kind of guy that you would likely imagine later on in the ministry of Jesus that his disciples would have tried to keep away from him. Instead, the Lord is moved by compassion. And you turn to the last one, and this is probably the biggest uh, kind of misfire of them all, what our motives would be and what our values are uh, compared to what Jesus are. <laughs> he heals the man and gives him a command that honestly to the man had to make no sense. I mean, if you're really going to actively engage it, it had to have seemed to make no sense on the surface. Jesus sternly charges him, sends him away at once, saying, don't tell anyone. I mean, go to the temple so you may be pronounced clean. That would have been their, you know, their doctor service, so to speak. As part of it, it would have also been what marks him as clean, so he's no longer unclean. He's been able to communicate and interact with people. But don't share it. <laughs> I mean... It, He's having a command to not talk about Jesus. And interestingly, the Lord displays his commitment to obedience at all costs. Because what does the man do? Honestly, he does what I think probably all of us would most likely have done, which is go out and tell absolutely everyone. And you have to think, too, it was probably not a quiet telling. I mean, if you just had a death sentence that also made you die alone and kind of rot until your appendages fall off and you just get miraculously healed from it, I'm probably not going to be going up to people saying, Hey, Grady, I got healed. Let's talk about that. <laughs> right? It's going to be screaming. It's going to be yelling. It's going to be excitement. You <laughs> 45 goes around, talks freely about it. He spreads the news. And what happens? His exuberance, weirdly enough, him even giving credit to Jesus, hinders the ministry of Christ. And again, we would, we would think in our own values, we would think he's doing the right thing. He's telling people about Jesus. He's giving thanksgiving. He's showing gratitude. But he's being disobedient. You see, the Lord Jesus values obedience more than he even values gratitude. Weird to think about that, isn't it? You see, all of these things are 
are worked out in front of us here to showcase God values certain things. He values prayer. He values preaching. He values compassion. He values obedience. And that's important to know what God values. One, because it teaches us who He is. But there was a reason why we read Genesis chapter 2. It's because this God who desires certain activities, He commands them. That's another word we could use. When He's dealing with humans, it's not like He's dealing out of a position of ignorance. When he makes his commands, when he expresses his values, when he shows us his truth, it's not made from a position of ignorance about how people work. All of us at some point in our lives are baffled by the rest of humanity. We're like, man, those people are crazy. See, God never feels that way because nothing is hidden from him. He knows the inner parts of the human heart. So when he's showing us what is important and what is true and what is right and what is valuable, it's made to our position of weakness and not out of ignorance. So when he explains to us that prayer is to be an aspect of rest, and we're like, but I'm just too tired to do it. He's lovingly saying, but you're wrong. Or when we say, but God, but God, there's such a big crowd. I mean, I know this is maybe how we preaching is a little awkward here. He knows. But God, I, I, I mean, you can imagine the guy responding, but I want to tell everybody. I'm healed. Just obey. The challenge for us is this. Now, this is a challenge that is specifically directed at believers. If you're God's child, if you know him, you love him, he's given you his commands, his law, and he's given it to you as a guidepost to life. Are you endeavoring to follow? Or are you going your own sort of simple little way? Uh, Most of you know, not all, but I went to college at Covenant College, our denominational college, which is on the top of a square mountain. And it really is. It's flat on the sides and flat on the top. It's really an amazing piece of design that God made. It also means that driving up and down from school is a little bit harrowing. Because when you're driving down the side of a straight mountain, if you look off the road, it's straight down. The other problem with Lookout Mountain is that the way that it's shaped is perfect for the clouds to hit and roll up and over. So the fog is spectacular. I think in my freshman fall semester, I think I went something like 10 days without seeing the grass from my window. And I lived on the second floor. Not like I'm living five stories up and couldn't see the grass. The fog was so dense from the second floor you couldn't see the grass. So when you had to drive down this winding road to get to the bottom so you could go do whatever you needed to do in Chattanooga, your only hope was to follow the little reflectors in the center of the road. And no one in their right mind would ever go, you know what, 
I don't need them. I'll make it fine. I know it's foggy. I know it's night. I know all of my lights do is just light up the fog so I can't see anything at all. I don't need the reflectors. I'll be fine. Which is why one of my hallmates actually flung his car off the side of the mountain. My junior year, you couldn't see his car from the road when it came to rest. 150 feet that way, he and they both walked away, no injuries, miraculously. But we would all say, talking to any student at the school, please pay attention to the reflectors in the center of the road. Follow them as closely as you can. I mean, not too closely, so on the other side of the road, but follow the reflectors. Yet it is, again, intriguing how often with God's commands and God's law, we're like, nah, I got it, God. I mean, I know you know all things, but you don't know all my things. I got it figured out. It would be appropriate for us as God's children to periodically just take a little bit of an inventory and contemplate that where are the areas, how are we actually committing ourselves to our own ways, to our own values, to our own desires, no matter how good we think they are. Back in Reformation era, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and such, Calvin was intrigued because uh, when he talked about true Christianity, he would hold up the opposite regularly when he talked. And the opposite of true Christianity for him was never like Satan worship or some sort of kind of goofy caricature of evil, it was self worship. And most often for him, it was actually phrased as superstition in proper religious activities. It was an effort to do the right thing by my own way. The same way that you can imagine this man walking away from Jesus thinking, yeah, I think you mean don't talk about this, but surely you can't mean don't talk about this. And it is appropriate for us to consider how often in our own lives we do the same thing where we say, God, surely you can't mean this. You must mean what I mean. And may it be that we as God's people are repentant for that, that we may find forgiveness in King Jesus. For we see here, he is compassionate to the humble, compassionate to the broken, compassionate to the sick and the unclean. He is the tender and merciful God who heals all of his creatures, his children. And one day we too will be clean in this way. When we pass through the veil of tears, pass through death itself into glory, and are fully healed. And until then, may we be creatures of repentance and obedience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have such clear knowledge of Jesus from your word. You have told his story, his true, real, accurate story, such a beautiful and lovely way. God, forgive us for the way that we attempt to worship self. And oh God, we as your children, may we obey you as you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.